Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, current investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment maker Goldman Sachs. So every now and then, a new consumer food trend pops up in the market, whether it's Greek yogurt or plant-based milk or paleo foods. We as modern consumers are constantly looking for that next new thing that tastes good and is also good for you. And for me, one of my go-tos is kombucha. It's a probiotic, I like the flavor, and it's got just a little bit of alcohol content. So for those of you who do hang out with me enough, you've likely seen me with a bottle of healthy kombucha. And that is why I am super pumped to have Dinah Trout, the CEO and co-founder of HealthAid on the podcast today. Dinah has a wonderful energy to her and with her co-founders started the business brewing small batches of kombucha in her kitchen. And now just a few years later, having sold over 36 million bottles of kombucha in 2018, HealthAid is now the fastest growing beverage company in the fastest growing beverage category here in the United States. So in today's episode, Dinah and I sit down and talk through HealthAid's exponential growth, as well as the challenges of scaling a manufacturing-based business. Additionally, Dinah and I hone in on HealthAid's brand and how that defines the entire business building and consumer experience. So why don't we get started? Welcome to the show, Dinah. How's it going? Hi, how are you? I am doing great. Thanks for taking some time today. Very excited to talk about HealthAid's founding story. Me too, John. Great. So then to kick off the conversation here, what was your inspiration behind starting HealthAid? Yeah, sure. It's kind of a funny story, actually, because it started with hair loss. (laughs) Yeah, so not what you expect. So basically, in 2012, my best friend, my husband, and I were all working jobs. I had a job in corporate America, so did Vanessa. Justin was working marketing for a company, but we were all feeling a little unfulfilled. We kind of had this instinct or this voice from within telling us we wanted to start our own business. We had a bigger mark to make. We wanted a challenge. We wanted to be at the top and that we weren't going to get that in our current trajectory. It felt like we had to make a change. And that was really the driver behind us even getting together and being like, well, what could be? (laughs) So we started an entrepreneur club in 2012. We got together and thought about what kind of business we could start. And ironically, we would actually drink my kombucha in a lot of these meetings. And I had learned how to make kombucha back in the day in graduate school. I went to school for nutrition and just fell in love with food and started fermenting foods. So I made sauerkraut and sprouted cashews and drank kombucha and all that kind of stuff. We would like sip on my kombucha during this entrepreneur club and be like, what is the business going to be? Um, so I think it was, it was before our noses, even before we knew it, but basically Justin worked for a hair loss prevention company and he was able to see in his job, how far people would go to protect their hair. And he was really motivated by that. And he was like, we need to come up with a natural solution for hair loss because a lot of stuff out there was chemical based or didn't work. Also, he was personally motivated because he was starting to spin up there. So we were like, great, let's start researching what will grow the perfect hair. So we start researching that and we find online that in parts of the world, they use the kombucha culture, which is also known as a SCOBY. And it's like a physical, it looks like a pancake and it sits on top of the tea and it's what holds all the probiotics in it. 
And it's what eventually turns the tea to kombucha. Anyway, it's similar to like what's used in sourdough bread and yogurt and kefir. It's a culture. It's like an actual ingredient. Anyway, they use this culture as a mask on the head. You know, you leave it on there for 10 minutes and apparently over time you're going to get hair growth. So, and it wasn't just one person saying this. It was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of videos of people saying, hey, this scoby brought my hair back. So because I knew how to make kombucha, I knew how to make a scoby. See, the way it works is to make a scoby, you make a batch of kombucha. It's like a byproduct of the fermentation. So I knew how to make a scoby and it was cheap relatively to make scobies. I just needed sugar, tea, water. So we started making kombucha, not for the liquid at all. Like we didn't care about that. We would (laughs) bottle it up and put it against the wall. Whenever friends would come over, we would give it away. It was really good kombucha because I always made the best. But we were interested in the culture. So we started gathering these cultures in an effort to save the world from baldness. And meanwhile, we're sort of accumulating this kombucha and not really caring about it. So then like three weeks into this project, we haven't even started using it on Justin's head. We get a phone call from a friend of a friend of a friend who runs the Brentwood Farmer's Market and had had recent dinner with Vanessa and knew about our hair loss project and was like, hey, I happen to have an open spot in the summer months at the Brentwood Farmer's Market. Do you want to take it? It's just for the summer and it starts in three weeks. And of course, we were like hungry to start a business. We were so hungry. So we were like, yes, 100%, we're in. And we hung up the phone and we're like, shit, (laughs) how are we going to do this? We don't have any product yet. You know, we haven't even (laughs) figured out how to make this mask. Like all we have are the cultures. We haven't turned it into like a beautiful cosmetic product that somebody would buy for 50 bucks or whatever. So we were like, what are we going to do? And we kind of like in a movie scene, we like looked over to the wall with 60 cases of unlabeled kombucha. And we're like, oh, we're going to sell that. And <laughs> what we thought was going to be a summer project to make some money that was ultimately going to start our hair loss business. We quickly realized upon a couple months in the market that there was a huge opportunity with kombucha and people loved our kombucha. And we just loved selling it. We loved the business side and we made a pivot. We never ended up putting one culture on Justin's head, (laughs) never went the hair loss route, fully pivoted making kombucha. And that was that. So that's how it got started. That's hilarious. And it's funny as I'm picturing Justin's head. I don't know if you've seen the migration for Elon Musk and his hair over time or LeBron James and his hair over time. But I would imagine that as Health Aid has been successful, his hair has naturally come back. That's the hope, at least. <laughs> I don't know if for them, that's because they actually were doing things that like were cosmetic, but it's been maybe a little bit, but got a full head of hair. So who knows? That could be just from drinking kombucha. But yeah, it is a little bit like that. <laughs> That's great. And Health Aid itself, I think, is a really strong and genuine brand. And it all revolves around this mentality that you all spout that's called follow your gut. So mm-hmm. we'd love if you could talk a little bit about that and how that permeates tangibly through different aspects of the business. So we came up with the name, the anchor, and that tagline all in about two weekends before the first farmer's market. What's interesting is I don't know if it was the universe that was helping us out there or what, because we were only expecting this to be a summer project, there was no pressure to come up with the perfect thing. And I think for me, that was one of the most valuable lessons is we came up with such a badass name, a badass logo and a badass tagline. I think because there was no pressure for this to be the business that was going to be our identity. 
So that aside, you asked about the tagline. We came up with Follow Your Gut because it was cool. It sounded good. It rolled off the tongue and it felt very appropriate for kombucha. The liquid, follow your gut. There's probiotics in it. So therefore, it's good for your digestion. That was sort of the whole point originally of the tagline. And we were like, oh, we love it. Let's trademark it. It hadn't been trademarked yet. So we felt like, great. And we were trying to follow in the steps of Nike and Apple. And so we wanted a really strong tagline, like just do it. So we came up with Follow Your Gut. We had no idea that it was going to be our whole ethos as a company. We talked about the origin story to the first farmer's market, but since then, and it's been six years, almost seven. In March, it'll be seven years since we sold our first bottle at Brentwood. So in six short years, we've built a whole big business. We're in 18,000 stores. We're sold in every state. We'll sell 36 million bottles this year. We've got 200 employees. We're the fastest growing brand in the category. And kombucha is the fastest growing category in all of beverage. So we're essentially the fastest growing brand in beverage. It's a really exciting place to be. And the three of us, Justin, Vanessa, and I still operate the business. But if you remember from that origin story, we had no idea what we were doing. We were just passionate about starting something. We wanted to make a mark. We felt that we had something to say. Kombucha ended up being sort of a mistake, you know? It was something I was passionate about and I'd learned how to make and I drank all the time, but it wasn't like the three of us, the kombucha trio, you know, that lived our lives around the product. So I guess my point is follow your gut has been literally our business practice the whole time. I mean, because we haven't had the experience to guide us. So the only thing that could guide us along the way when we've made our decisions to get here has been, what does my intuition tell me? What does my intellect tell me? What does my gut tell me? And that's how we've made our decisions along the way. And what's really cool is that it's gotten us here real fast. So it sort of tells you something about your intuition, right? It tells you something about your gut. And I think when we started to realize that we were experiencing success in business because we were following our gut, we started to realize, wow, that means anybody could do this because everybody's got an instinct and there's nothing special about ours. That's sort of when we realize that that's the mark we want to make on the world. We want others to feel like they can go follow their instincts, go follow their gut, stop listening to what everybody else is telling them to do, look on the inside and go get whatever it is they want in life. Whether that means starting a business or not, that's not the point. It's more that your instinct and your gut has a lot more value, I think, than today's society appreciates. So follow your gut didn't only become a business practice, then it became our mission statement. Like that's the impact we want to make on the world. I want people to view a bottle of health aid and say, yes, I'm going to go get it today. And I'm going to get what I want because I'm going to listen to inside. That's the goal to get to that level of connection with the consumer that would actually inspire them to follow their gut. So it's a huge, huge tagline. It's a big tagline. It's like our whole MO. Yeah, and it permeates through everything you do, and I think the consumer really sees that, even in the small, unquantifiable ways. And that makes me curious, especially when you're starting out. It's funny, oftentimes I work with founders who also admit, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing, and there's a beauty to learning the lessons, and sometimes you learn them the hard way. Especially as I think about the viral demand that HealthAid had, especially in the early years. I mean, kombucha takes a couple of days to make, so I'm sure there are moments where you were actually struggling with logistics or supply chain. Could you talk a little bit about meeting demand and keeping up with stock flying off the shelves? Yeah, it's been a nonstop challenge. I mean, way back in the beginning, even when we were just in the farmer's market, 
every time you take it to the next level, it's a challenge. You got to figure out that next level of scale. So if you want to grow and you want to grow fast, expect to be in a state of discomfort and challenge the whole time. So you're always going to be pushing for the next step. Now with production and logistics, it does have a bit of a chapter feel to it, meaning you'll get to the next level and that will suffice for a bit, but then it'll quickly not. And you have to get to the next level and you push to get there and then it'll kind of be. So there is a part in logistics and supply chain where it hums for a little bit. But then if you're growing, you got to quickly push it to the next level. So in our lives at HealthAid, there's been probably 12 major hills with manufacturing and getting to that next level in terms of supply chain. So back in the farmer's market days, you know, when we went from like one market to seven markets, And we all had our full-time jobs yet, so it wasn't like we had time. When we were making it just for one market, I was making it like you make it at home. You know, brewing tea, putting it in a glass jar, doing it all by hand. I didn't have a filling machine, obviously, in my kitchen. And that was okay to do because I was only making 60 cases of kombucha a week. It was still taking a lot of time. But as soon as you go to seven markets and you're making seven times that, well, suddenly you can't do it like that. So you've got to push to the next phase. You got to say, what's going to make this better? What's going to make this go faster without compromising the quality? So even in the very beginning stages, you're pushing yourself in those ways. So product flies off the shelf. You can't make enough. It's a struggle. I think with each phase, you just have to make the best decision you can to get to the next level. And I guess what I have to say is, if I were to take a person from the very beginning, like let's say I was to talk to myself six years ago, and bring them into my brewery today, I don't know if it would help them. I think if I took my old, my 2012 self and brought her in to see Health Aid today, I think she would be extremely discouraged because she'd be like, how the hell am I going to build that? And the point is, she doesn't need to know six years ago. She just needs to know how to get it to the next step. And the next step after that will become clear because those problems will be very real to her at that time. And she'll, you know what I mean? So My whole point is it's a step-by-step thing. And at each stage, it will be clear to you what the next sort of ideal state is. And all you got to do is get it that one step better. And then you can stay there for a bit. And then you'll see, okay, there's another step approaching that's even better. And then eventually you'll get to that place where you're like, holy shit, I don't even know how I got here. Because it just, all you have to do is see one step ahead. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I think you put it very well where if you think about six years in total of work, it's really daunting. Instead, you should be breaking up step by step. And that's how you build a business is tiny step by tiny step, which ends up to these large highlights. Step by step. Yep. And you don't even have to see the whole staircase, I think is the point. A lot of people say, how do I even get there? And it's like, we don't even know where there is yet. (laughs) So just don't worry so much about all the steps. The steps will become clear. So It's not just that you go step by step. It's also that like be okay with those steps up ahead. Some of them aren't clear yet. You don't really know those yet. And that's okay. They will become clear. It's almost like you just got to see 10 feet ahead. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. And as I think about step by step, when I think about manufacturing and brewing kombucha, it's more or less step function like in your production, right? So at some point you build a new factory and then you have X capacity. And then in order to get to Y capacity, you have to build a whole other factory or a whole other brewing station. So how should entrepreneurs that are maybe getting into the food and beverage industry think about building this capacity in a step function way, just 
given all the constraints they have. So whether that be capital, whether that be manpower, whether that be the operational team behind it, what are some considerations people should think about as they make these step function leaps in manufacturing capacity? Oh, so many things to think about. I mean, obviously, the bigger the space, the more capital it will take to build. So we've been in five breweries, and we're about to build a six. That is very capital intensive, because every time you have to move to a brewery, you got to build it out. At the same time, if I were to build out this brewery six years ago, I would be out of business because I wouldn't have been able to afford this six years ago. So I think the first thing you have to consider is how much money do you have? to put toward this project. And I would say that you want to go as big as you can with the money you got. I wish we could have leased a 50,000 square foot space back then, but only built out 5,000 of it in the beginning and just sort of ate the cost of the other part because in the end, we would have saved a lot of money by just slowly expanding into the space or subleasing the rest of it. So it makes it a little less capital intensive if you have a place to grow into. Okay, so that's number one. The second thing is where are you building your manufacturing has to be really thought through. I did not think about this when we started HealthAid. HealthAid was a business born in LA because that's where our consumer is. And that's, of course, where uh, the farmer's markets were. And that's where we live. So this is where we built it. But California is the single worst place to start a manufacturing facility for a number of reasons. I mean, it's voted literally last on the list. (laughs) Um, not only just California, but LA is literally last on the list, LA County. So it's important to think about and challenge, does your manufacturing have to be here? And where could it be? I have several friends who made the decision to build their manufacturing part of their business elsewhere. And yeah, there are hiccups and challenges with that. But right now they're paying 12 cents a square foot. (laughs) And we're not. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're not. And other states and cities have incentives, and California does not. So I'm not suggesting you leave California. I mean, we love it here, obviously. And I just think that it's something to consider. If you could go elsewhere, you should really look into the best place for manufacturing. Manufacturing is not the same thing as headquarters, it is where you make your product, and you're going to have to get real tight on dollars because you have to compete in the marketplace and your product ultimately has to cost what somebody's going to pay for it. Right. And if you've got competition in the market, so let's just take kombucha as an example. I would love to make a kombucha that I could sell for $5 a bottle because to be honest, that's where it flows the best with us, the way we make it, but I've got to be competitive. I'm selling it for four. So where do you think those dollars get tightened? We've got to tighten everything. We have a tiny space. It's super efficient. Like we're constantly tightening, tightening, tightening down in the brewery. So again, it's just something to think about when you enter manufacturing. It is not the same as the other parts of your business. And you really have to think about cost in manufacturing. And then I think the third thing to think about is, do you have somebody on the team that can help you see the future? I think manufacturing is one of the most important places to have someone that's been there and done that. This is one place where follow your gut may not work as well. It's like I hired somebody who is in manufacturing for 25 years, had engineered six breweries, had worked in kombucha for 11 years. He was definitely the most expert person you could hire for manufacturing kombucha. And boy, was it one of the best decisions I ever made to hire him. 
you know, he was able to see where we were and help us take it to the next step. So then with that, I'm curious, are there any recurring themes or patterns that you find consistent within any successful consumer company? I really believe that to be fast growing, I think the theme across no matter what company you look at is going to be there's a lot of hustle happening. So that makes you think about who you need to hire, hopefully, help you in your endeavors as you grow. And for us, the number one thing we look for is grit and ability to just work hard and fast and hustle because it's not a comfortable path. So you need people that are cool with that and that like kind of operate best in that world. Yeah, it's definitely a trial by fire. Yeah. So last question for you, Dinah, it's around the startup ecosystem and diversity. Specifically, I think there's still a really systemic imbalance between male founders and female founder representation. So what are some things that either we as investors or we as entrepreneurs and employees can do to help foster a more diverse startup ecosystem? I personally am not a believer that it necessarily has to be 50-50. I think there's going to be a natural tendency for every profession in terms of what balance there is of women and men. I mean, obviously, I'm a huge believer that women can do it just as much as men, obviously. I think it's more just that certain professions are going to have more males, certain professions are going to have more females. And I don't know what that is for CEO. My goal for CEO and founder is for it to be exactly what it should be naturally. I want to identify the people out there, women or men or whoever, that want to do it, but for whatever feel like they can't, and help them realize they can. So how do you do that? Well, you do things like podcasts where you interview other founders that have been there and done that. That makes somebody who's on the edge think, well, if they can do that, I can do that too. You help by fostering supportive environments and mentoring other people that are at the beginning stages to help them through those tough beginning times. It's like you just got to look around and put a hand out. But at the same time, somebody still has to step up and take your hand. So I think the point is, it's not like a lowering of the standard or anything like that. It's more looking out there and saying, hey, who wants in on this? We want to help you get here. And then you might get some more takers that don't look like your traditional taker. But I think the pendulum is swinging in the right direction. I mean, if you looked at entrepreneurs 10 years ago, it was way worse. And now there's a whole community of female founders and it's growing and it's growing because we're growing in our power of voice and therefore other females who want to do this are saying, hey, I can do this too. Got it. That makes sense. And then actually one last quick question for you, Dinah. It's around product roadmap. I'm curious for HealthAid, is it an exploration of new flavors or is it maybe a completely new product? Not even kombucha, but maybe something else that's around health and wellness. Both. So within Kombucha, we've got to stay competitive and launch new products because as we expand into the mainstream consumer and the mainstream buyer, like store buyers, they want different flavors. They want new flavors. They want mainstream flavors. So our flavors have sort of evolved toward the mainstream recently because we're trying to make Kombucha accessible to all. So somebody might be more willing to pick up cherry Kombucha than like a turmeric Kombucha as an example. So again, not compromising on any of the ways that we make it. We're just sort of evolving our flavors and adding new flavors that are going to be more appealing to the masses. So that's one way that we're innovating in the future. And then, yeah, I mean, we're thinking about what's next after kombucha. I mean, Health Aid, funny enough, though it was a name, again, we just picked right in the weekend. You know, it's a pretty awesome name and it means better for you beverage. And 
I think there's a lot of opportunity outside of kombucha in that space. And we're definitely thinking about it. So I don't know if like next year we're going to launch something new, but I think in the next couple of years, you'll see more out of us than kombucha. That's great. Well, Diana, thank you so much for the time. This has been a ton of fun and I will continue to be very happy, healthy consumer. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Don. It was really nice talking to you. Yep. Have a good one. Bye. Once again, a big thank you to Diner for joining us today. I have personally been picking up bottles of Health Aid on my Trader Joe's runs for at least three or so years now. So this episode was a ton of fun to make. And if you're not already a kombucha consumer, I know it seems a little bit hippie bougie, but I strongly recommend for the sake of your gut health to grab a bottle of Health Aid. In the meantime, if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you gave a quick rating and review as well as sent any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can reach me on Twitter at John Heasy, that's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y, or on Instagram at John Jihu, that's J-O-H-N-G-H-U. So thank you all for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.